Amen. As I said, we are in a sermon series on the book of Genesis. Last week, we tackled creation, all of Genesis 1 and 2 in the first sermon that's on the website. A quick note, if you, go to, if you go to look that up, you will see the recordings both from the first service and this service on the YouTube channel, but the sound is much clearer on the second service. And so if you start listening to the sermon on the first service and decide you can't understand a word I'm saying, click over to the second service and the sound will be much clearer. This morning, we're in the next story that comes to us. In the first story, everything is created to be good. In the second story, we mess that up. And I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this story because this is one of the most misunderstood stories in the entire Bible. You see, this is where we start breaking things. Um, And the interpretations that have gone around this story, I think they're very deep and they're very nuanced, but when they have been communicated, they've been communicated so flattened that people have taken away a very a wrong idea about what happened. So when I was in uh, fourth grade, third or fourth grade, I remember sitting in Sunday school and the girl next to me raised her hand and said, if Adam and Eve were the ones who messed up, why does God keep punishing us for it? And I was like, well, that's a good question. And the truth is, if you actually understand the story, that's not what happened. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to understand the story. So the story ended last week with God creating the whole world to be his dwelling place and his temple. And the final thing he did is he installed his image bearers in his temple. Us, we are his image bearers. There was a man and a woman installed as the image bearer in the temple. And the man and the woman were together given a job, so a vocation. They were given the role of stewarding the garden, the role of taking care of the garden. They were given freedom, so they were given the liberty to eat from any tree in the garden. They were given abundance more than they could possibly need, the liberty to eat from any tree in the garden. And they were given a boundary. So those kind of three early things, three early gifts given to to humanity, vocation, freedom, boundary. And the boundary was around this one tree that is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the boundary was you should not eat from this tree, but you can eat of any other tree in the garden. Now, another common misconception I get about this story, uh, if any of you were with us over the summer series, you know that one of the topics that I preached on was a question that a child in our congregation asked, which was this, if God is such a good parent, why did he put the tree in the garden to begin with? Right? You don't put arsenic in your toddler's playpen and tell them not to touch it. It just doesn't work. You're not a good parent if you do that. And the problem is that's not a good image. In fact, if you want to go back and listen to the full explanation of that story, that is on the website. The problem is it's not a good image because remember this tree is called the knowledge of good and evil, which is not an inherently bad thing. It's not like arsenic. It's not like poison. It is more like a stove. So you probably don't have arsenic in your playpen, but I'll bet you, you have a stove in your house. And I'll bet you if you had small children, you still had a stove in your house. And I'll bet you if you had small children and a stove in your house, at one point you had to have a talk with your child about not touching the stove. And if your child's like mine, you tell the child not to touch the stove, and they say, why? And you say, because it's hot. You can hurt yourself. 
ouch. And they say, why? And I say, I just told you why, because it's hot. You can hurt yourself. And then they start arguing with you because that's what toddlers do. And eventually you resort to, because I said so. Not because, not because you did not give them a reason, but because they didn't listen to the reason when you gave it to them. And I kind of hear a little overtone of that when God's saying, don't touch it, don't touch it. Look, you're just going to die, okay? Listen, you're going to die. That's what's going to happen. There's a lot that happens in between then, but I don't have time to explain the physics of it. (laughs) So don't touch it or you're going to die. And so the the humans are given a boundary around the tree. You, You can eat anything, any other tree. You may not eat this tree. Now, I wonder, and this is extra biblical, this is not in the Bible, so this is your pastor wondering. I wonder if God's plan for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was, in fact, that one day those humans would be able to eat from it. See, my plan for my stove is that one day my child is going to get old enough, and she's going to have enough wisdom and enough fine motor control that I can trust her to cook dinner without burning her hand off. But right now she's three, so she's too young to do that. And so the boundary around the stove is firm and it's no. But one day she is going to be old enough to do that. I wonder if God's plan for his image bearers is that they would continue to grow in wisdom from being in presence and in worship with God in the garden. Right? So we are told that God created the world, but we are never told that that creation is static. We are never told that it's not meant to grow and to change. And in fact, we're given this this hint later in the story when God says he comes to the garden in the cool of the evening, searching for the man and the woman. And the implication is that he has been taking walks with them in the garden. And I wonder if his plan had been for his people, his image bearers, to grow in wisdom, wisdom that comes from relationship with God, wisdom that comes from interaction with the presence of God, until the day came when they were allowed, when that boundary was removed, and they were like God and allowed to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If that day would have come, if they had maintained their relationship with God, I wonder if that had been God's plan. I don't know. I don't know. It's not in the Bible. Because what happened was this. The man and the woman decided that that boundary needed to be crossed. And here's how it happened. The scripture tells us that the serpent was the craftiest of all the animals God created. Now the serpent has later been identified in Christian theology as Satan or the tempter. Um, That is a whole nother sermon. Right now in the story, it's just called the serpent. And the serpent approaches the woman and the serpent speaks. Now this is the third time in our story words have been used. The first time words are used, it is God using words to create and to declare it is good, right? So God speaks, let there be light, and there is light. God declares it good. The second time in our story, words are used. The man blesses the woman. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And so the word is used to to name the creatures and to bless the woman. 
The third time words are used in the story, we see how powerful these things really are because words are used from the mouth of the serpent to deceive. To deceive. And whereby words were first used to create and second to bless, now we see that words can be used to deceive. And the serpent says, Did God really tell you not to eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said, oh, no, we can eat of the trees in the garden. God simply said, you shall not eat of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor should you touch it or you'll die. And the serpent says, "Mm, you're not going to die. God simply knows that if you eat it, you will be like him, knowing good and evil. Now, I want you to think what the purpose of those words is. That is a clever kind of deception called a half-truth. There's a little bit of truth, a little bit of falsehood. And the purpose of those words is to sow in the heart of the man and the woman a distrust for God. So that all of a sudden, hearing the words of the serpent, they start to think, maybe God doesn't know what he's talking about. Or, maybe God is keeping something good from us. Or, maybe God doesn't actually have my best in mind. Maybe God has drawn this boundary not for my benefit, but to keep something from me. Maybe God is playing a game whereby what he wants is to keep me from having fun, from being fulfilled, from living my best life, from being who I want to be. And so the man and the woman with those seeds of distrust sown in them look again at this tree, and this is where it gets interesting. So we're we're put in the head of the woman at this point. But remember, the man and the woman are standing right next to each other the whole time. We're put in the head of the woman. And once this distrust has been sown in her, she looks at the tree. And now we see her doing the same thing God did. Remember, God saw and declared that things were good. She looks at this tree and she sees it is good. And so she makes this declaration herself. That is good. It It is pleasing. It is good to eat. She is putting herself in the position of God, but she is doing it from a place of fundamentally mistrusting God, right? She's she's mimicking what God did of seeing something that is good, declaring it to be good, but because she is acting out of a mistrust of God, what she does is, that is, is then make this leap that because it is good, and I think it is good, thereby I am going to decide to cross the boundary set by God and declare for myself what is good rather than accept what God has declared for me what is good. And that's the boundary that is crossed. Do you hear what just happened? The first step is this distrust. Maybe God doesn't actually have my best in mind. And then what comes out of that is an action that that makes my declaration of what is good over and above what God has declared what is good. And so the woman reaches out, 
takes the fruit, eats some, gives it to her husband who was with her at the time, and he eats some as well, and things fall apart. And what happens there, immediately what happens in the stories, it says their eyes were opened and they realized they were naked. So all of a sudden, the immediate effect is the introduction of shame. The immediate effect is the introduction of vulnerability. The immediate effect of this knowledge of good and evil is the introduction of wanting to cover up what God had not saw a need to cover. And it's kind of like my three-year-old. So this whole, this whole story, I can imagine my three-year-old sitting here and looking at the stove and saying, it's not bad. It can't be bad because mom and dad stand in front of it and cook dinner at it. It's good. I eat the food that comes from it, so I know it's good. Mom and dad must be just trying to keep me from having fun because I know that's good. And because I know that's good, I'm going to go ahead and do it, even though they told me not to. And what would happen if my three-year-old reached out her hand toward a hot stove? She'd burn her hand. Now, what would happen? I would run into the room, and what would I say? Because you reached toward the stove, I'm going to burn your hand in punishment. No, that's not what happens. I come in, and I heartbroken cry out, because you touched the stove, your hands are burned, and now we have to deal with the burn. I didn't burn your hands, you burned your hand. I set the boundary to keep you from burning your hand, but because you burned your hand, now we have to deal with the burn. Fundamentally, what Christians believe happened in this story is that this thing called original sin was introduced to the world, and this is one of the most universally misunderstood topics, which is why I'm spending so much time on it. It is not that Adam and Eve messed up and God punished everyone else. It is that Adam and Eve introduced this thing called sin into the world, which is the spiritual equivalent of burned hands. It's a wound. It's something that hurt you. And God comes and he sees his beloved children and he says, look, you did it. You crossed the boundary. And now because of what you did, we have to deal with the burn because now there is a, now you have burned hands. And the way this works, and Miss Millie's um, description was, was, was absolutely uh, adequate, profound for this situation. It is like a domino effect. Because of the burned hands, the brokenness that was introduced into creation then just got into creation and it affected everything. It affected the generations to come. It affected the creation at the very level of its DNA. Not because God was mad and trying to punish everyone, but because they had put their hands on the stove. And what happens to humans is that from then on, we are born into a world covered in the residue of Genesis 3. Now, what I want to do really quickly for you is I want to walk through exactly what that looks like and exactly what that means. Because if you think this story is ancient and irrelevant, it's because you haven't actually wrestled with the fingerprints of Genesis 3 that are inside all of us. 
because we are still born into a broken creation, even though we are on the other side of working toward redemption, we're going to get to that, we are still born into a creation marked by Genesis 3, and its fingerprints are all over us and all over creation. There are three ways I think we see that. And those three way, the three broke, the three burns, whatever metaphor you want to use, three ways of brokenness, come within the relationships that were set up to be good. So within Eden, we were set up to be in good relationship with God, in good relationship with each other, with human to human, and in good relationship human to the created order. Those were the three main characters that were established, and all three of those relationships were good and in harmony. And those three relationships are what gets broken. (laughs) So when God comes and he declares these curses, which is the equivalent of a mother saying, you burned your hands. He's explaining what happened when this boundary was crossed. To the man, he says, by the sweat of your brow, you will bring forth food from the earth. The cursed is the land because of you. And what he's saying is that the relationship between human and creation was supposed to be was supposed to be good, right? So you could eat from any tree of the garden without even working for it. All of the food came forth abundantly, more than you could ever want, without even toiling for it. And now, because of what you have done, because sin has been introduced into the fabric of creation, creation and humankind, instead of becoming, instead of being in good relationship, became enemies trying to survive each other. And the, the, the ability to get food from the earth got harder and harder. And the ability of the earth to survive man got harder and harder. And instead of being together as man careful and diligent steward over the earth, they became enemies trying to survive each other. And that word about cursed ground, if that doesn't sound terrifying to you, it's because you are one of the first generations to have not been entirely dependent on this year's harvest so you didn't starve to death, right? Most previous generations throughout history would have heard that. The curse of the ground, by the soil, uh, the sweat of your brow, you will bring forth food. Meaning, if one year's crop fails, your whole town is going to starve. That is real. That is life or death. The interaction between human and earth was life and death for most of history. And it actually still is. The only reason we don't see it is because we're several steps removed from our food supply. And so the first level of curse, the first level of brokenness, was that this relationship between humanity and creation was broken. Second level of brokenness, the relationship between human and human. The man and the woman were created to be in good relationship, partnership with each other. In fact, the woman was created as the man's azer, the man's partner. When people call that a helper, I'm like, you don't speak Hebrew. So the word azer actually means like military reinforcement. When the word azer is used in the Old Testament, it is used of an army coming as a reinforcement to an army under siege. And so when God says, I have created you an azer, helper is technically right, but it doesn't really capture what's happening here. It's a a partnership that is together going to take the world by storm. They are together going to fulfill God's mission in the world in representing God to creation. And that partnership gets broken 
God declares this curse to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband and he will lord it over you. And that phrase, lord it over, takes this partnership and does this, right? And that is the first step of domination, oppression, whatever you want to call it, that then snowballs from there because the very next story we have the first murder, the very next story after that we have the first murder for fun, and it goes downhill from there. And so this break within human and human starts in Eden and snowballs out of control. And it starts from that first partnership being broken so that one is lording it over the other. So the brokenness between creation and man, the brokenness between, uh, man, within mankind, and the third, and this is obvious, the brokenness between man and God. The brokenness between man and God. So humans were created to grow in wisdom by walking in the presence of God, by spending time in the presence of God, by walking and talking in the cool of the evening in the garden. They were, meant, they were created to worship. They were created to reflect. They were created to be in the presence of God. They were created with, in the image of God, like a glove is created in the image of a hand. And when the hand withdraws from the glove, there is a sense of emptiness that cannot be filled by anything but the hand. And at the end of this story, when the man and woman are sent out from the garden, when they are exiled from the presence of God, it is more than simply just an exile. It is the glove coming out of the hand, right? (laughs) You are still in the image of God, but there is this hole that can't be filled by physical needs and can't be filled really by emotional needs and can't really be filled by social needs and can't be filled by all these other things that I keep trying to put in it because it is a spiritual hole within the human person who is designed for companionship with God. And that gets broken at the end of Genesis. Now, if you have been paying attention to my words, you know all of these breaks that I'm describing, none of them ended 6,000 years ago. None of them ended 2,000 years ago. None of them ended five minutes ago. The fingerprints of Genesis 3 are everywhere, and if you are self-aware enough, you see them within yourself. Right? If you've ever lain awake at night saying, God, where are you? Because I feel empty, and there is, you are nowhere in sight. If you've ever had that experience, you've experienced that you've touched Genesis 3. If you've ever had a relationship with someone who just, and it just seems to get worse and worse and worse despite everyone's best intentions, and it seems that you cannot help hurting the other person no matter what you do, you've touched Genesis 3. If you've ever had an experience where you cannot get rid of the bitterness because you have been hurt so badly by someone, and what makes it worse is you know that they weren't even necessarily trying to hurt you, but they did, you've touched Genesis 3. If you've ever watched the news and wondered why it seems that we can only take care of ourselves by utterly destroying the earth we live on, you've you've touched Genesis 3. All of this goes back to Genesis 3. This is the core brokenness of the world. This is where things fell apart in the story. This is what it means when Christians say original sin. It doesn't mean you are evil. It means you are a good creation born with burned hands. Doesn't mean you are evil. It means you are a good creation born 
with a tendency toward brokenness, toward God, toward your fellow human being, toward creation, because you are a daughter of Eve or a son of Adam. Now that's the bad news. But there's good news too. The good news is even in this darkest story of the entire scripture, we see the seeds of the redemption that is coming. If one of the means by which sin was introduced to the world was the break between humanity and creation, if sin got into the very nature of creation, whereby the bloodthirstiness we see in the created order is not an echo of Adam, but in fact an echo of Genesis 3, if that is true, then when God begins to speak of the new world, we'll hear words like this. One day, a lion will lie down with a lamb. One day, a child will play over a viper's den. And the bear will eat grass like an ox, and they will not hurt or destroy on my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the presence of God, even as the waters fill the sea. If it is true that sin entered the world through the brokenness between man and man, between human and human, then when God gets to the work of remaking the world, he's going to remake that. And if that's true, then when he gets about his work of salvation, then he's not going to be just focused on saving individuals. He's going to be focused on reconciling individuals to each other and bringing them out of their lonely eyes and bringing them into a we and bringing them out of their isolation into a community that is so whole and so holy, that is so well-connected and so tight-knit that it is actually called and functions like a body. And this body is one that counteracts the curse of Genesis 3 because rather than lording it over anyone, this body outdoes one another in showing honor. In fact, the most honored are the weakest and the most respected are the poorest. And they know that they are part of the body by how they love. And if it is true that, the fun, that sin entered the world through the break between man and God, through this act of distrust whereby we, God's creatures, began to think that God didn't actually know what he was talking about, began to think that we could get to God and God's ends more quickly, that we could grow up without getting wisdom, that we could go ahead and start cooking at the stove while we were still three, that we could just skip ahead and do it our way. If it is true that the break between God and man came from that first seed of mistrust, then when the healing comes, we will see that the salvation comes from a great act of trust. An act of trust so powerful and profound it can only be called faith. We will see one who had the option to do it another way. 
The tempter came and offered him kingdoms without suffering. The tempter came and offered every knee to bow before him in heaven and on earth without any submission to God. And he said no. And then there was another garden, another struggle, and another serpent whispering, did God really say you have to do this because this seems extreme? Did God really say this is the only way? Are you sure? Because surely there's another way. And in the greatest act of faith in the history of the cosmos, Jesus stood up and said, not my will, but thine be done. And through that act of faith, undid Genesis 3. So my friends, this morning's story is bad news, but in it we see the seeds of the hope that is coming. And what I want you to hear this morning is that I want you to understand the nature of the curse, but I want you to understand The curse has been overcome. The curse has been undone. The curse has been reversed. And though the fingerprints of the curse still show up in our lives within us and around us, it is only our willingly giving it power that gives it power over us. Because we live in an age in which Genesis 3 has been conquered by Easter. And an age in which we are pointing toward Revelation 22. And so with those words, I leave you this week to ponder as you look within yourself and as you look around yourself. Where do you see Genesis 33? 3, not 33. Where do you see Genesis 3? And where do you see Jesus? Because I promise you, they are both there. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, you are the giver of all good gifts. You are the weaver of this great story. You are the one who has gave us freedom, who gave us free will. You are the one who comes after us every time we turn away. And you are the one who made a way for us even when we thought there was no way. God, for those of us in this room who think we do not need your salvation, convict us of the Genesis 3 within us. For those of us within this room who think we, we are perfect, draw our attention to our burnt hands. Convict us that we might repent and receive your forgiveness. But for those of us in this room who see only the Genesis 3 and only the despair, God, break us open and fill us with your hope because we are here in your grace standing on your proclamation that the curse has been undone, that Easter conquered everything and the age in which we live is an age of life and not the age of death. Come, Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Grant us humility and grant us courage 
as we follow you anew and afresh into every morning. This we pray as we say together the prayer our Lord taught. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Folks, this is the point in the service that we call the offering. The offering is about what you are monetarily offering to the work of God in the world. It is also about what you are offering from yourself. So the offering is all of you. It's time, it's talents, it's presence, it's gifts, it's service, it's witness. It's everything that you think of yours. God wants it and God wants to use it. And so during the offering time, we give you a chance to offer yourself, all of yourself. You can come, you can offer prayers by kneeling at the rail. You can pray in your seat. If you have a, a cash gift or a check gift, you can leave it on the altar rail or you can drop it in the box on the way out or you can give online at wumc.com. But we invite you to use these next few minutes before the chaos of the world starts afresh outside to stay in this sanctuary, to receive what God has given you, to say thank you, and to offer yourself back that you might leave this place as a beacon of grace and as a testament to all the world that Genesis 3 does not have the last word. And so in these next few minutes, I invite you to get quiet, to get authentic, to get real, and to offer yourself to the work of God. 